Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. We're switching things up today a little bit. Typically, the episode where Hugo and I talk is on Tuesdays, but because we opened the bookstore this past weekend, we wanted to get the one up with Julie Wurzenbach, our bookstore manager, uh, as soon as we could. And so we're moving the normal Tuesday to Thursday. So is that clear, Hugo? Yeah, I think that it's clear with me. I hope it's clear with everyone else. I think what they know is that you and I are talking and they can either choose to keep listening or not. <laughs> That's a good point. Okay. So um, today we're going to talk about uh, well, the, the the main focus of the conversation is about political action because with the shooting in Texas last week, it already feels like like it happened a really long time ago. It's amazing yeah. how quickly sort of the news cycles move and all that. But obviously, this is something to keep front of mind for for a long time. Um, and the thing that I was wanting to talk to you about was like, so if you're a person who is upset and angry about this as obviously millions of Americans are, what is something that people can do to get engaged? People who are not in politics but are politically adjacent or maybe not even politically adjacent, what what is something that besides yeah. just getting upset and expressing their outrage? Yeah, and here's the problem. All of the ways typically that people get engaged are just in this echo chamber where they're talking to people who think the same thing that they do. And right. so they may, maybe they feel better about themselves that they're doing something or saying something or tweeting something, but they're not accomplishing anything. So let's take a step back and figure out why don't we have gun laws in this country that prevent things like, you know, an 18-year-old getting his hands on an assault weapon and doing what happened in Texas, right, right. or Buffalo or anything else? Um, we've talked about this on the podcast a lot, which is the fundamental premise of this entire podcast of Tusk Ventures, Holdings, Philanthropies, everything else. Your whole life, right? Yeah, is every policy output is shaped by a political input. That's it. That's what I learned in 15 years in government. And what that means, as our listeners probably already know pretty well, Every politician will make an extremely intelligent, rational choice at every single juncture solely based on their next election and nothing else. So it doesn't really matter what the right thing is to do or what you want them to do. They only respond to the inputs they're given. So if you want different outputs, if you want different laws, you need different inputs. And right now, the reason why we have it this way is, and look, this is an area where the Republicans are deficient. There's also laws that can't pass because of the Democrats. But... Um, Average turnout in most primaries in this country, congressional turnout, is 10 to 20 percent. It's usually even less for state and local office. Um, because of gerrymandering, 95-plus percent of districts are uh, already decided, and, and just the, the only outcome is really what happens in, in the primary. And so if you have really low primary turnout and the general election doesn't matter, whoever wins that Republican primary wins the seat, Right. NRA members are good at voting, right? They're really organized. Um, so if turnout is 12% and half of that are NRA members, if you were to vote for an assault weapons ban, you would lose your seat in the next election, no question about it, right? And so if you value staying in office because it fills this hole in your psyche, this desperate need for affirmation and validation that you can't live without, you're always going to prioritize that ahead of everything else, which means if we want to see Republicans vote for an assault weapons ban, vote for more background checks, vote for just more stringent gun laws in general, they have to be able to survive their next primary if they do so. And the only real way to do that, big picture, and this is why spending so much time and money on mobile voting, is to you have to increase turnout from call it 12% to 40%. Because if you do, and then you look at just based on the polling, the majority of the people who would have voted would want somewhat sensible gun laws. I'm not, not saying they want confiscation of guns in people's homes, but maybe like a little harder to get your hands on an AK-47. And the only way to do that is not like rock the vote and Beyonce concerts and all that stuff. Like, first of all, they only do it for the presidential election, which already has fine turnout. 
Um, it's, it's mobile voting. Like, we have to make it exponentially easier for people to vote. And the problem we have right now is not only is the entire political establishment against this, but Democrats, Republicans, unions, lobbyists, trade groups, because they know how to win in low turnout primaries. Um, the cybersecurity community, I guess they're well-intentioned. Well, let's, let's walk through they're it. they're against us, too. Let's walk through it. Like I mean, we've talked about this many times, yeah. but it's obviously worth um, revisiting in this context and being clear, both to people who've listened and understand a little bit about it, but also some people who don't. What is, and, and you, you just explained it well, that the that all the sort of political um, interest groups um, know how to win the low turnout elections, as you just said. But what is the central obstacle? Like, as you're trying to get the spread, the, the this idea around the country, what is like the first the, the, line the, of the assault? The facial obstacle is people claiming that because of the risk of hacking, we can't possibly do this. And who makes that claim the loudest? Like um, when you These like really like pathetic groups like Verified Voting in D.C. that like just desperately want to maintain the status quo at all costs. And, like, and are these supported by companies that do elections, like that manage elections? I don't know where, where they get their money. I, I, I see them as a bunch of dilettantes who like grew up wealthy, went to Yale, have never worked in a real day of actual politics in their lives, but think that they're brilliant because everyone's, everyone's always told them so. They write a lot of white papers, they go to a lot of conferences, and they know what the fuck they're talking about. Right. And then cybersecurity experts who— So you need to end run around them. There's obviously— For sure. No, right. And, and then cybersecurity experts who, I don't know if they're quite as bad in the sense that I think they're just giving their opinion about technology, and I don't blame them for doing so. However, and this is why most of them are probably academics in the first place, they can't see the forest for the trees, right? Which means, one, they don't seem to understand that our current system of voting is highly vulnerable and screwed up, right? Voting machines— well, and it obviously gave Trump yeah. all that ammunition, right? Yeah. Because there are so many weird things about how the voting is done in so many well, crazy I'll, I'll systems. I'll give an even better one, right? So verified voting would say the only thing we should have are paper ballots. You know what paper ballots got us? Bush v. Gore. You know what that got us? The Iraq War. You know what that got us? Hundreds of thousands of people killed for no reason. My voting technology has never killed a single person. Theirs has killed hundreds of thousands. So, one, the computer scientists don't understand at all um, that they have to compare the tech risk of mobile voting compared to the risk of the other forms of voting. But number two is, like I said, they can't see the forest for the trees. So here we are. We have a country that is literally burning down, right? We have a gun epidemic. We have an opioid epidemic. We have people who don't have food. We have people who don't have health care. Our schools are terrible. Our infrastructure is crumbling. We're doing nothing on climate change. And there's probably 10 more things if I thought about it. And yet, they would rather just see, you know, fiddle, be play Nero and, and, and play their fiddle uh, and see the whole ship go down um, than trying something new and different that could actually save it. And so they're the first line of defense. But the problem is, I'm struggling with them. Forget about when the entire political establishment you know, comes out against this thing. So it's tough. As I mentioned on a previous podcast, we've got a bill in D.C. at the city council Yeah, right I wanted now. to ask you about that. Yeah, that would allow D.C. residents to vote on their phones. Um, eight of the 13 members of the council are, are co-sponsors of the bill in favor of it. Eight of 13. Yep. Generally, these are people— That's a majority, of, I think. It is people of color who really want to be able to sort of increase access to voting. And there's a guy named Charles Allen, who is a rich, white, out-of-state or out-of-district city councilman. He's literally out-of-district? He's from out-of-district. Oh, I see. And he, you know, basically because some— Who does he represent in Washington? Rich people. So rich the, the people. Northwest? Yeah, like. yeah, I think so. So he himself, he's the chairman of the relevant committee, 
is refusing to grant a hearing simply because some computer scientist told someone on his staff that this is a bad idea. And he won't meet with you just to go over like he, what? He, we had a, our coalition met with him last Friday and he told them to go fuck themselves. Really? Yeah. And so like they went up to his office yep, and he just Yep. And so look, and, and in this context too you're like, "Hey, here's he here's was, a chance for DC." He was to, angry because I'm putting pressure on him. He's angry but at yeah, you. At me. Yeah, at me specifically. But you know what? I haven't started putting pressure on this guy. There's stuff that I've found out about him that hasn't become public yet that's going to really fuck up his life, and I don't want to put it out there, but I'm going to have to. So the point is this. If you truly believe that this country is at the precipice of disaster, which I do, if you truly believe that if we don't fix the underlying mechanical problems of how we elect people, we will not be one country in 2020 20 or 25 years, as I do, then there's arguably, short of, of committing a crime, Nothing unethical about anything I could possibly do to try to make mobile voting happen, including potentially hurting Charles Allen quite a bit. Okay, so if I don't live in D.C., I live somewhere else, obviously if, if you live in D.C., you can make your, your feelings known to Charles Allen and, and call his office yep. and send him emails and maybe go by there if you want to. But um, what, what can someone else do who lives somewhere else in the country yeah. who says, okay, I'm really interested in this mobile voting thing. I want that where I live. I think it's a good idea. What, what's, what's something you can do? Yeah, so there's a few things you can do. So for, for, for D.C. itself, I think it's to reach out to, and I, Basil, can you look up the contact information? from Phil Mendelson is the, is the overall head of the city council, and I think he's, he's been neutral so far, and obviously he's going to care a lot less about people in Virginia or you know, Oregon or whatever it is reaching out to him than you know, people in the district. But uh, the more he hears from people, the more that— he realizes how important this is, and look, there's plenty of ways. I've, I've worked in politics for a long time that if Charles Allen won't grant a hearing to maneuver the bill into another way so it still gets a hearing. So Phil Mendelson, who, by the way, seems like a really nice guy from what I can tell so far, but his telephone number is 202-724-8032. His email is pmendelson, that's M-E-N-D-E-L-S-O-N, at dccouncil.us. So Please, if you hear this and you, you feel so moved, email him, call him, and just say, look, I'm not a resident district unless you happen to be, which is even better. Um, but what Charles Allen is doing is eventually putting us on a path to destroying the whole country. You, Phil Mendelson, alone can save this. Please do it. Um, but, but let's take also the question is, because you know, when you and I were texting this morning about this, other than mobile voting, which, and look, we're still building the technology, so it, it, there aren't that many sort of tangible calls to action other than the D.C. bill right now because— But people can get it going in their area, right? They, they can, they? Or, but or, it's hard in, in a vacuum without legislation to do something. So then the question is, okay, what can you do about—let's go back to guns specifically. Right. Um, you know, donating money to some gun organization, it's fine, but they've been failing for decades. Like, what's, what's the point of them? Um, or going on Twitter, you know, is pointless, right? What I think needs to be done is at the margins. When there are members of Congress, senators and congressmen who live in districts or states that have competitive elections, right? So it's, a, you know, the 5% that have competitive general elections in the House and maybe the 25% in the Senate make a point of giving heavily to their opponent in the general election and make a point of saying, I don't even care whether this Democrat from the House or the Senate wins, I just need you to do something about guns, and for as long as you will not do so, I will support these people who are running against you. Because what you ultimately need is majority in the House, which I don't think the Democrats will have in 20, after 2022, but I do think it's going to keep flipping back and forth. What you really then, therefore, need is 60 votes in the Senate, right? So you're going to need at least, call it 10 Republican members. If there are 10 Republican senators who really think they're going to lose their seat 
because they won't pass an assault weapons ban. Um, and they are worried enough about the general election that they'll sort of say, I'll deal with the primary, then that could change things, right? right. But, but unless you're affecting the direct inputs, you're not going to change the outputs. So doing things to make yourself feel better is not helping anybody. Let me ask you a related question, and this is sort of a, almost like a politics one-on-one question, but why is the NRA still so powerful? Like, they've been totally tarred with scandal. Um, they... Uh, they, they, they have this incredibly hard line, no compromise position. I mean, it's, it's like the, Politicians are it's, totally... It's like the Ukrainians, man. The people who support this are true, true believers. It is the only issue they care about. It is the only issue they vote on. And they show up and vote in primary. So for as long as they have, it doesn't matter that big, but as long as they have an incredibly dedicated, motivated following of people who will fight and fight and fight, for as long as primary turnout is low they're going to have a tremendous amount of influence. If you want the NRA to have less influence in primaries, um, then you need to make their vote share a lot smaller. That's it. Uh, this is a smaller question, and a friend of mine actually criticizes me for even being as interested in this as I am. But do you think that the failure of the police response in Texas for the shooting will have any kind of political resonance like around the country? I mean, m- maybe it will spur other police departments to be more proactive in these situations, right? But, you know, the problem isn't that we don't have, like, enough, you know, fortifications at our schools, right? I mean, we talked this last week. Like, our kids who go to a fancy downtown private school in Manhattan, they have active shooter, active shooter drills, let, let alone the rest of the country. In fact, the, one of the reasons that they couldn't get into this classroom is because it was locked as a gun protection measure. So, you know, yes, maybe this will—this plus the cop in Parkland who, like, fled, you know, when, when the shooter came, maybe this will all help— improve training in other police departments, but it's going to change the political inputs that change the policy outputs for better gun laws? No, not at all. Um, should we switch to, to Biden? This sure. Is, that we've taken this in a, you know, I think so. a yeah. pretty substantive direction. Um, you have a theory. Um, is it a, is it it a serious theory? It's a theory, theory about just, Joe Biden. Maybe it's more of a, a kind of Is Joe of a, Biden a, a next-level genius? That's, that's my genius? question. Right. So, okay, so we kept seeing, especially in the last couple of weeks, Joe Biden kind of making these gaffes, right? The, the most notable one saying over the last couple of months that we would militarily support Taiwan, uh, kind of implied that we would send troops to Taiwan if China invaded, um, that Putin had to go and that he was the, the cause of everything in Ukraine and, you know, other stuff like that. And so the media always interprets it as, ha, here's this guy who's, you know, either so kind of off script or so old or whatever it is that he can't say the things that his advisors and, and handlers tell him to say, right? That's the assumption. That's probably correct. <laughs> but let's just play this out a little Wait. bit. So let's say that I were, were Ron Klain. I was the White House chief of staff. What do I have to work with? I got a 78-year-old guy who we know has a history of sort of saying stupid things um, and therefore has a lot of credibility in his ability to uh, conduct gaffes, right? Like if he says something, they can say, yeah, yeah, that was a gaffe. And like everyone will believe it because Biden's known for doing this. What if he used that to your advantage? What if he said, you know what? Let's keep China off balance. Let's have the president say, yeah, we're going to respond militarily. And then we'll walk it back and the press will talk about his gaffes and everything else. You know, but if you're President Xi, in the back of your mind, you're like, well, it's probably a gaffe. But maybe not. And that changes your thinking, right? And I think Biden could could do this, uh, foreign policy especially, 
But even on domestic just keep issues, people guessing. They yeah, don't, just, they just never keep know. a game of no misdirection. Right. And, and as a result, that just gives you a strategic advantage. So do I think they're doing this? No. But do I think it would be interesting if they did? Yes. I wonder if someone will try that, like the in in a similar situation. He's not the last, you know, sort of like adult president or adult like office holder we're ever going to have. So maybe maybe you can maybe you can just I sort mean, of throw that idea out and, there. For in a weird way, if you think about Trump, because he didn't really have handlers that told him what to say or do, right? He just said. Well, I think they tried. And yeah, they, they tried, but it was so clear that they were failed that they failed at it. He did say a lot of crazy shit that I think other foreign leaders took seriously, simply because. He was crazy, and there was no one really checking him inside well, I, the White House. I have a friend. I'm embarrassed to even say this, but I have a friend who's a, a not a Trump supporter, but kind of a Trump, like sort of thinks that he's underrated. And he said he thinks that was the whole thing with Putin. Like he thinks that that Trump realized that Putin was this just kind of wild card, and he realized the only way to deal with him was to be a wild card right back. Um, That's which, giving Trump a lot. No, I know. Well, of course. It's, I, I, I mean, mean, I don't believe under it. Under that theory, I, Trump would not have been a wild card for the 40 years preceding his presidency. Yeah. And he was like that about everything, obviously. Yeah. So it's hard, hard to give him any credit for being strategic. But, you know, it's an interesting idea. It, I mean, it just it, it, the, the potential effectiveness of it, of like actually being unclear about where you are on something and sending conflicting right. like signals. Same thing domestically with Build Back Better and other times he's spoken to like Congress or the Democratic Senate or whatever it is, and said stuff that was supposedly said to him in confidence or sort of the opposite of what the staff had been saying. And again, those seem to be unhelpful, but maybe there are times where you could use it to your advantage. Look, for as long as we have a world where septuagenarians and octogenarians are the leading candidates for president, which is what it's been for a while now, um, we're going to have presidents who at least could theoretically get away with the, with the notion of an unintentional yet intentional gaffe. All right, Bradley. This is a question you just added to the um, to the lineup today. Uh, I'll just I'll just read the question straight out. Uh, with with Roe v. Wade um, about to be overturned, will this affect the exodus of tech companies to Austin, yeah, and to Miami, I, places I, like that? I do think it really could because it looks like 31 states I've read will have at least legislation introduced to ban abortion. I think they think 26 of them would likely pass it at some level. Oklahoma basically already has right. So you are a tech CEO in Silicon Valley, in New York City, and you're thinking, you know, the taxes here are incredibly high, the regulations are incredibly cumbersome, I've got this far left that is just castigating me all the time, when all I'm trying to do is like build something new and create jobs. Um, and other people would be a lot nicer to me, and the weather is better, so I should move. And that basic logic has caused a huge outflow of businesses, tech companies, from tech, from California, from New York, to places like Miami and Austin, right? Um, but if you are a tech founder, the hardest thing or one of the few hardest things of your job is attracting and retaining talent, right? The competition for engineers especially is so great that if you don't create a working environment that they want to be in, they won't be there because they could turn around tomorrow and get another job that pays just as well wherever they do want to be. And so if you start to see individual, either current or prospective employees say, you know what, I don't want to live in a state that doesn't allow for abortion, either because they think it could affect them directly or because they just morally feel like it's the wrong thing to do, um, that will have an impact, right? And so if enough employees of enough tech companies say, we're just not going to move to these places, we're just going to leave you, all of a sudden, as you're making that decision, taxes, regulations, weather, the annoyance of sort of the DSA, but I can't keep my employees, um, that becomes a very you know, different calculation. And at least for some companies, I think we'll keep them in places like New York and California. 
Put yourself in the shoes of someone who is is the CEO of a company that's already there, right? Yeah. What do you do? You got fifteen hundred employees. You're you're a significant operation, something like that. What's what's what are the options? You move. You do more remote work? Like what's uh, the yeah, well, look, one thing is you do have remote work to fall back on. Like, I'll give an example. We no longer require people to come to the office, in part because it's a really tight labor market, and lots and lots of people seem to be able to want to work remotely, and I don't want to lose my ability to retain really good people or attract really good people because I'm insisting that they be at a desk instead of on a Zoom, mm -hmm. right? So one is remote work definitely is an option. Two would be, you know, depending on how big you are, open up outposts in, in cities like New York or San Francisco or LA or Chicago or whatever it is and give the people who are upset the first priority at moving and working in those cities, right? Now, not every tech company has the budget and the need to have offices all over the country, but for those who do, that's a potential solution as well. But look, is there a world where companies that are now headquartered in Austin or Miami. And I'm not quite sure what happens with Florida on abortion, so it's not quite the same thing as Texas where we know that it's it will. Definitely, it, it's definitely. It's a red state that we expect to be, but like I'm saying, Texas is like extremely red, right? It's, it's gonna ban abortion. Florida is always still Amazing kind of too, a, Texas a is where state. Roe v. Wade originates too. It's an, yeah. incredible, it's an incredible irony. Yeah, so um, it is possible just in the same way that founders have made the decision, I'm gonna leave New York City, I'm gonna leave San Francisco, I'm gonna leave Silicon Valley that they may make the decision eventually, I'm going to leave Austin, I'm going to leave Miami, because it's doing me more harm than good. So, you know, the truth is, if I were a mayor, if I were Eric Adams, if I were, um, you know, Garcetti or Caruso, if he becomes the new mayor, if I were Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, um, you know, uh, London Breed in San Francisco, I'd be going hard at this, right? I would say, like... What should they do, though? What would I think you should launch a campaign aimed at both your startups that you have and ones that are... Net move from your state to other states and saying, look, yes, we live in an environment that has probably higher taxes and regulations, but what comes with that is basic morality and freedom, right? Yeah. And the freedom to do what you want with your body. And I think for female employees, especially female founders, that's a really, really potent argument, right? So um, I, I would be launching those campaigns if I were the mayor from those cities. Now, speaking of remote work, uh, there's an interview with uh, in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend with Ed Glazer, who's the Kind of foremost economist on cities. Yeah. Um, his it was it was about like what kind of problem cities face if people don't return to the office. I just want to read you one quote because it, it sort of sort of encapsulates Did we have the story. him on the podcast once? You know, it was before I was involved. I think we might have. He has a new book. I was thinking about having him on because he he is yeah, his his area is your area. Yeah. You know. Um, so for most of us, he says, the most important interactions of our lives will occur in the real world, and consequently, location remains absolutely critical. So that's his point of view. Um, he goes on to explain all the reasons why that's still sort of uh, under threat. You actually, in reading this interview, you had this uh, kind of these thoughts about work-life balance. Tell me how that it's shocking that I read something and then that my thoughts went to a sort of related but different topic as opposed to on topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, shocking. It's, it's right. Just the, just the Bradley uh, way. Well, what, Correct. Who would have thought? Um, yeah, look, so here is my observations. I mentioned before that we're not requiring people to be in the office because I don't want to be at a competitive disadvantage for retention or hiring. Um, what I have noticed, though, in our New York office, which is a really, really lovely office, in fact, Basil, who's sitting next to us right here, is responsible for that. Like, you couldn't really have a much more pleasant place to be, right? And yet, if you look at who is there on a regular basis, it's people over the age of 40. Um, and the, my first reaction was, if I'm 25 and all of the bosses are there and my peers are not, I'm going to be there 
around the clock because that's where opportunities come. Like on political campaigns, the way that the young people, really, the, the ones who succeed, succeed, it's because they're there still at 9 o'clock at night when the campaign manager and the communications director and the operations director are talking. And then eventually they kind of bring them into the circle and then you become their person and you move up. Right. Um, <clears throat> so it would seem to me that if I'm in the office, if Chris is in the office, if Jordan's in the office, if, you know, Michaela, Michaela's in the office, you know, whoever, Shelly, whoever it is, that if you want to make a good impression on them, you would choose to, to really be there. And yet that's not the case. And I don't think it's because my employees are lazy because they work incredibly hard or dumb because they definitely do this work have to be really smart. I think it's that they have a genuinely fundamental different view on work-life balance. And I think, I, I know that I'm an extreme, extreme example. So using myself here is, is, is not, doesn't make sense. You're an extreme example of, of, of drive of, and, and ambition. Of poor work-life balance? I've been working on getting it better, but yeah, yeah. At least certainly in my twenties and, and mid till I was thirty-five or so, forty. Yeah, very much so. You know, now I have the freedom to to adjust that. But um, but maybe they're right. You know, maybe the answer is work is important, but it's one part of your life. And if you base all of your self worth and, and 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 all of your feelings about how much you succeed professionally, which a lot of that is beyond your control as opposed to looking for meaning and fulfillment, as opposed to prioritizing relationships, you may get ahead, you may have a better title, you may make more money, but you may not be as happy, right? And so I, I actually kind of think this generation is smarter than we are and has it right. Well, the question, I think, well, one question, first of all, there's the, the, the potential for recency bias, right? So people, you know, the younger people who have just gone through COVID, that was a major event in their work life that looms much larger for them sure. than it does for us who are a little yeah. older have seen it's a small, few different smaller things. Smaller percentage of our career, yeah. Um, but then the other part of it is like, what is a generation exactly? Like maybe maybe COVID has spliced up the, the, the groups and even smaller than generations, right? So a group that's in college or high school coming up behind them. I've heard, again, that the, the numbers on this are all over the place, but that, you know, young people coming out of college want to be in the office. And, and, and in fact, like, that, that's an important aspect to them because they don't want to just go right from college to, like, their, you know, their apartment yeah, or their I, house I, I or whatever. I get that, except I'm just telling you the, the actual evidence that yeah, no, I, I see. Yeah. But beyond that, when they say that, I think what they mean is they want to be in the office two days a week. Right, right. They don't mean yeah, they, I, they like want to be there Monday to Friday, you know, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Right, and then coming on the weekend sometimes, I guess too, which other, is what I do, and which is what you know I certainly always did. I guess the other aspect of it too, and this doesn't apply directly to Tusk, but uh, but just as the as the you know as the economy gets a little tighter and and less stable, um, the idea of like being around your bosses might seem a little more attractive. It, it might, but you know we're in this very very weird dynamic where we've got really high inflation, we've got the stock stock market plunging, and yet unemployment is relatively low. And it takes a while, the though. labor market is really tight. So yeah, but that and may the, not the be the stock market's like, been plunging for a month. So it may, but, but but the notion of unemployment going up materially and therefore workers having to make different choices in order to sort of get what they want, I still think it's a little while away. I guess. I mean, there's definitely a lot of layoffs going on in Silicon Valley. I mean, that's definitely starting to happen. Um, but we'll see. Who yeah, knows? But in that case, that's not even the economy. That's we thought this before. Those companies were all wildly overvalued because it was in the financial interest of the venture capitalists to do so. And because growth was prioritized ahead of absolutely everything else, all this hiring happened that any rational, normal business never would have done. Um, NBA Finals. Um, yeah. It's Boston versus Golden State. Um, so we're not going to talk about basketball per se. We're going to talk about how 
um, you decide if you are a non-resident or a fan of those teams. Yeah, who to root for. Like, how do you decide who to root for in a kind of, like, vibe or... Yeah, so I, I, that's what I was wondering. And right. so it, I was trying to think... Of I have an th- uh, airtight theory on this I want you to know. Do you want to go for it? Well, I just think if you're a New Yorker, you can never root for Boston yeah, I, under I, any circumstances. I get that, except you're, they, but, I, I think Yankees fans feel that much more strongly than Mets fans. Really? Because so what city would you never root for? I don't like Philly. Yeah, uh, I don't like Philly. That either. would be hard. Um, <laughs> you know, does anybody outside Philly like Philly? No, but they really love that about themselves. Yeah. Um, like they're worse than Boston, right? Just in terms of like the outsider. I mean, at least the, the level of violence. I mean, they literally have, I think, a jail at the Eagle Stadium that gets filled up before the game starts. <laughs> Is that true? Because of all the violence in the parking lot. Is that lot. true? Yeah, I, you know, we'll, we'll double check it, but I've, I've heard that. Basil, you're a big Eagles fan, right? Is that? Um, Basil's so, not an Eagles so, fan. Yeah, so as, as a Mets fan, I don't have the same antipathy towards Boston as, as a Yankees fan would. But, and also the Mets haven't been that good for most of their their, their existence. Um, so what are the criteria? So, so one is, is there either a, a they kind of deserve it, it's their time mm-hmm. question. But in this case, no. Golden State's won, what, at least three titles in the last seven or eight years. Boston won, I guess they won in 2008, so that's a little while ago, but they're they win all the, the time winningest, overall, I think, yeah. franchise in NBA history. So neither of them deserve anything. Okay. So then you can go they're to also, like... Okay, go ahead. I was going to add something to that, but I think you're going there. Are there people on the teams, whether it's the players, the coach, the owner, the GM, that you really would like to see rewarded in some way? Um, and, you know, from a sports narrative standpoint... If Steph has a, a massive NBA Finals, they win, and he's the NBA the MVP, does that put him in the conversation for top ten players of all time? Maybe, but that's like unless you're Bill Simmons, that's a pretty esoteric thing. Um, Boston's got all these young guys, and maybe it's sort of I like, like the way they play a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah, and it's sort of maybe it would Jason be cool Tatum for them. Is sort of emerging star. Yeah, they have a young coach, so, so maybe you would say it that way. Um, you know, the owners are just all insanely rich people that I don't have any particular view on one way or the yeah. other. And then in terms of the cities, it's really tough because I was thinking about where, if I had to live in one of them, where would I want to live? And I was in Boston over the weekend. I think it would, I would definitely pick San Francisco over Boston. <sighs> yeah, but when I'm in San Francisco, I'd probably pick Boston. So um, <laughs> here's the thing. What's interesting about them is they're both actually small cities with a massively outsized hold on American culture. They both have like a million or less residents, right? Whereas oh, we're yeah, looking I think that's at right. you know eight and a half million in New York City. So they're not that big, and yet I think Boston, maybe because of its historical significance, San Francisco because uh, of tech, you know, has this sort of out, outsized presence. And so on one hand, you know, you're not going to a place that feels like a small town. They feel like big cities, even if they're actually not, and they have all the things that big cities are supposed to have. Great restaurants, sports, museums, all that stuff. So the downsides, right? Boston would be number one, the weather, right? I, I, I'm finding New York too cold these days to make it worse to me. You're, just... you're, you're increasing like obsession with the weather. I just find to be like you're a lifelong New Yorker. Like what you just gotta like let oh, that I'll, go. I'll give you an example in a second. Um, two, the mass holes, right? Like literally, it's the only state I'm aware of where the average person is considered to be an asshole. And they have an actual <laughs> phrase for it called masshole. Now, I have friends from Boston, Massachusetts, and a lot of them are wonderful people. But, you know, that stereotype exists for some reason, and it can't be entirely... You know, no one's ever said, the friendliest state in America, the nicest state in America, Massachusetts, right? Ever. Um, so, you know, on one hand, it, you might not like your, your neighbors, and the weather really sucks, uh, but you're near New York. San Francisco, 
Um, the weather's pretty good, although it's weird, right? It could be like 46 and cloudy on a July day and then 76 and sunny on a February day. So it's, it's unpredictable. But downsides. One, people are fucking intolerable. Like Even though the Boston people are mass holes, as someone who works in tech, um, and I do think they've been knocked down a few pegs, you know, just given the, the way the tech is, is no longer sort of lionized in the way that it was five, ten years ago. Um, but just the, like, insular culture, it is a one-industry town. Everybody's obsessed with kind of the status of where you are in the tech industry, not unlike D.C. for government. Whereas Boston, you know, there is a lot of tech, but it's also a hub of higher education and finance. And there's a lot that's happening in Boston. That, and that's part of what makes New York so great is— you may be a big shot in your own world. Nobody but else like, cares. Yeah. If right now we're looking out on Orchard Street, hey, we're, we're in the studio, by the way, PNT Network, and the people who've walked by, I don't think a single one of them could tell you who the CEO of Goldman Sachs is. Now, in that world, or who the you know biggest hedge fund uh, CEO is or whatever else, in their world, they're as big as it gets, but everyone has their own worlds here, and they have their own, and that kind of makes it really nice in a way, because it's not quite as boring and, and repetitive. So I thought you were going to say nobody, people walk by don't recognize you, and that was nobody just... recognizes me either, right? <laughs> but that's 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 a given. I'm not the CEO of Goldman Sachs. I'm just a random dude. Um, so um, okay, let's wrap this yeah. up. So anyway, who, who I, are you rooting for? So last point: this Lyle this morning, I said, "Who are you rooting for?" And he said, "Warriors." Why? Steph Curry. So kids. Yeah, across the board. Yeah, love Steph Curry. I know. I'm going for that too. I'm just going to be. I'm, I'm going to be a kid about it. Steph Curry, Warriors. Yeah, I'm I think that's. I think that's probably right. Clay uh, Thompson too. I love. Which him. city would you pick though? If you had to live in one of them, San, San, Francisco. Francisco. San Francisco. So interestingly, this morning on the. I don't. I don't feel ha- like that negatively towards people in San Francisco at all. I want you to know that's because you don't have the experience that I have of it. I guess. I mean, I've been there a bunch of times. I yeah, have friends you're there. Not, yeah, but that's yeah. different. You're a yeah. tourist. Yeah. If I'm, I'm there for work, so I'm okay. in meetings I've, all I've, day. I've done some work there, but yes, not yeah. like you have. And, you haven't and done work in the tech industry It's there. true. So, so, but um, I was texting with the political consultant group this morning, because there, there's a bill in Canada, we didn't get to this, that would dramatically change the uh, how guns are obtained and allowed and even kept in people's homes. And so someone raised the question of, if you could live in an English-speaking country that's not in the U.S., what would it be? So we all started throwing it around. And here was my list. Um, London, number one, because it's the most like New York and there's the most opportunity. Tel Aviv, number two, because everyone effectively speaks English. I would feel a connection to the homeland and the weather is great. Singapore, number three, um, because— Freedom. The freedom. Yeah, that's true. But at the flip side— if you're a high-performing person and, and you want to be able to achieve as much as possible, you can do that in Singapore. And the weather is somewhere between good and brutally hot, and everyone speaks English. Toronto, four, it's a great city. It's just fucking cold. Um, and I made Sydney, five, but I've never been to Sydney. Yeah, so that's I'm just, just sort of yeah. guessing and yeah. assuming. Must be um, nice. But, you know, yeah, it must be nice. So we, were gonna, we have one other topic. We're going to kick the next topic to— um, What was it? It's the thing about songs that get stuck in your head. We're going to talk about that next time. Okay. Songs that stuck in your head. We're going to get to that. Why the does end that of, happen? What's that? Yeah, we're going to, we, we don't, we, you're going to have you time to, to refine your material? theory. material? Yeah. Well, no, we have to, we have another podcast recording coming up right now, so we got to go. Okay. Sounds good. See you next week. See you.